welcome to episode 117 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Krivat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at krivatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Deborah Magid, Director of Software Strategy for IBM Ventures. Deborah represents IBM's high-growth software and hardware businesses in the company's IBM Ventures. She's responsible for sharing insights about emerging markets, technologies, and business models with venture firms and entrepreneurs around the world. As a director of strategy in IBM software businesses, she also brings insight from the venture community to the development of IBM's growth strategies. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. As IBM's primary liaison with the venture community, she has worldwide responsibility. She's a frequent spokesperson on topics of relevance to entrepreneurs and investors, such as open innovation, disruptions in various industries, ESG and climate, women in technology, and trends in investing. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Deborah Magid, Director of Software Strategy at IBM Ventures. Deborah, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. This is a pleasure. I'm excited too. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? I was a little kid. Rachel Carson published Silent Spring. I don't think I read it in 62. I was reading kid things, but I did read it sometime in the 60s. And the idea that there would be no more birds, I mean, we're all just blown away by that thought. We never thought something like that devastating could possibly happen. But we were kids and we didn't really know what to do about it. And a few years later, in 1970, there was an announcement somehow from, I think, from the government center in Boston that there was going to be an Earth Day in April. And I was in a little town. It was like 8,000 people, Sharon Mass. And I thought, okay, there's something I could do. I could be our Earth Day coordinator for my little town. So I went to the government center in Boston. I picked up all the materials. I organized my class and some of the adults around town. And my shining moment was a photograph of me leaning on a rake that was published in the Boston Globe. <laughs> That's awesome. It was. I was so excited. Yeah. So I was at the first Earth Day. My mother thought that it was the right thing to do. And she took me when I was a little kid in New York to Union Square Park. And I participated in Earth Day, although I barely remember it. But my mom tells me I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was great. It was the first time I ever organized something for a community. So and I was a shy child. So it was a big deal. What are your personal drivers? I studied cognitive psychology. And I tend to think about how people view the world and each other and the things around them and how they fit into society and into business and into nature and their own homes and their families. I just tend to look at things through that lens. I went to Austria with a really good friend who's from Vienna. My husband, Tom, and I went and we drove around and we went to the Grossglockner, which is a mountain that has a beautiful glacier that he remembered from his youth. And it was almost gone. When I see things like that, I just get so sad and so angry. So I think there are a lot of things in our environment that are very palpable like that. 
when you meet people that don't believe the facts or don't understand the facts around climate change, how do you explain it to them? I try to use illustrations, whether in words or visuals, and I'm very visual, but I'm also very auditory. So I can hear two words from a story and I know what story it is. So I tend to want to explain things to people, not by, not even by using science, although I'm a scientist myself. I look at a picture that was in the news recently. Here's the River Po a few years ago, and here it is today. And it's a creek. I look at the, the photographs I have of the Grossglockner and the glacier. And my friend was almost in tears and he's this great guy and he couldn't believe it was almost gone. So there's a lake north of here that's almost dried out. It's a recreational area. It's beautiful. The drought is palpable and it's having changes that are so significant. You can't not see it. We're in some trouble. Yeah, we're in trouble. How do you and IBM work to help mitigate climate change? So I spend a lot of my time with venture capitalists and startups, almost all my time. That's my job. And over the years, I've been trying to explain to our business leaders the kinds of invention that are happening in the startup community and the kinds of things that are being invested in. A while ago, it was clean tech. We don't call it that anymore because as investments, they didn't do that well. But it was still clear that the kinds of things that people were paying attention to were worth paying attention to, and our business leaders did. And then a couple of years later, I was looking at agriculture because agriculture is so affected by climate. And as a tech company, we have the ability to impact things that use data and analytics and AI and so forth. So I've been talking to our business leaders about that. And finally, the most recent motion inside the company was to really create a whole sustainability division. So we already had some assets. We had assets related to supply chain visibility and transparency. We had assets related to managing buildings, heating and cooling of buildings, and data centers as well. Assets related to managing different kinds of assets like railways and windmills and you know wind farms and things like that. And we have a whole practice in consulting for energy and electricity and utilities. Work with a lot of the oil and gas companies. There's a lot of work across the company being done. But this new division, which is called sustainability run by a general manager on equal footing for the ones that run cloud and the ones that run data and AI and for security and so forth. His whole division is to look at the opportunities that are created by the urgency around climate. What he wants to do is take the sustainability ambitions that people have and turn them into action. Because I'm sure you've noticed this, and we've certainly noticed this. A lot of our clients and a lot of the companies we come across really have great intentions to do something about climate and to do something about sustainability, but they don't know what to do. So they don't really take any action. So there's a lot of fluff going around. Maybe that's a little cruel, but you know, it, it, I, I don't blame people for not really knowing what they should do. And so we're trying to help them understand that and figure it out. And so if our CEOs face pressure, they face some urgency, but there's uncertainty as they pivot towards action then we can help them figure out what they can do with the right conviction. And then behind the conviction, strong technology, a good foundation of data, open innovation, which is where I come in because I work with the new inventions, the startups, the VCs and people in that community. And then you have this nice, perfect storm where you have people's intention, you have the information, you have some solutions, and you have the ability to work with people from outside your own business to make things happen. 
You meet with a lot of clients. I do, yeah. <laughs> so would you say that most of them see climate change mitigation, sustainability as something they have to do, something that's dictated for compliance, something that maybe because of their customers and employees, they have to do it? Or do you think they see it more about a way to lead and a way to grow? So we've done some surveys about that. <laughs> so funny you should ask. Way more than half of the people we talk to believe it's not just about compliance. I mean, it is about compliance, but that's not what they're so focused on. What they really want to do is innovate and make a difference and grow their business. And if they do the right things, it actually is really good business. As I said before, it's intrinsically tied to data. You're trying to integrate these ideas of sustainability with what you might already be thinking about in terms of digital transformation. And by the way, this whole move towards digital transformation was accelerated by a pandemic. So, you know, these things, if you tie them together, you do get stronger business performance and people are really starting to understand that. So how was it affected by the pandemic? A lot of the things that you would do in person or with a group of people are now done over Zoom or WebEx or online. And the ability to use digital technology to advance business and make decisions and do things that are new, there's just a whole area of business doing these transformative things with digital assets and data that changes the way people do business. So they're approaching business in a different way. And the pandemic accelerated that because they, there were a lot of cases where they had no other choice. I mean, think about this. In a, in a manufacturing plant, there are things that are air-gapped, and you have this guy who's responsible for this equipment and a different guy who touches that equipment, and they don't touch each other's stuff. During a pandemic, they can't go in. They can't go in and do that. So how else do they do it? You need whole new systems that allow you to operate that equipment and not stop doing business and not stop making things, and you do it with digital assets. So of course the pandemic was horrible, but are you saying that by leveraging digital technology, better processes were developed or just different processes? Some different and some better. And I would say that whenever you have something that's damaging to the environment, to business, to society, new things come out of that. So if there's disease, people invent ways to deal with the disease. If there's a pandemic, people invent ways to do business together, to be engaged, even if they can't meet each other in person. I'll give you an example from the venture world. The VCs never invested in a business when they had not met the founder. They just wouldn't do it. Now they do it all the time. They figured out how to do it. Can you talk about your prior background? How did you get where you are today? It was a really interesting path. So I don't have a degree in business. I have a degree in cognitive psychology. And I was studying how people, what they pay attention to, how they learn, how they share information, how they understand information. That's what I was studying. And I got my first jobs doing UI UX design. So user interface design, ex user experience design, and helping engineers understand how people operate. So I would run tests of new systems and give people little tasks to do so they would learn how to perform the task. And the engineers would watch and I would record what the responses were. And then we would say, okay, that was way too complicated for them. You thought they would be able to do a system that was really complicated, but you were wrong. I was right. 
let's simplify this. And so I spent a few years at AT AT&T and GE and then IBM doing things like that. Then I was between jobs and I was here in Silicon Valley and I was being told I had to move back east where headquarters is. So you weren't between jobs, between jobs. You're just between jobs at the company. At the company, exactly. And I didn't want to move back east. And I pinged one of the executives who was now quite senior, who's the general manager at that point. One of the first people I'd met in IBM a few years before. And I said, I don't know what to do. You know, everybody's telling me I have to move back east. And he he said, who told you that? (laughs) I named names. Actually, he said it like this. Who told you that? (laughs) (laughs) So I named names and he said, have a nice weekend. I'll call you on Monday. And on Monday, I had the job adventure because I was in Silicon Valley. I knew some VCs. I had been talking to some startups and he thought I had the right connections, the right place and the right personality to work in venture and work with startups and do some transformative stuff for the company. And that's how I got this job. I always tell uh, people who I mentor, and I do mentor quite a few people, that luck has to happen. And that was lucky for me. But you have to create opportunities where luck can happen. Because if I hadn't called him, it wouldn't have happened. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had along the way, other than the Move East one? I got a job in IBM with one of the acquisitions we made. I'm not going to name names. It was just one that didn't work out. (laughs) You named names before and it worked out for you. I know, I did. I know. And um, I could tell it wasn't going to (laughs) work. So I had to ask to be rescued. And I did ask to be rescued. The same executive who got me that job, actually, it came right out of that. He said, look, stick it out for a little while longer. If it works out, you'll be a hero. If it doesn't work out, no one will blame you. I thought that was great advice. And uh, it didn't work out. Nobody blamed me and I got the job in venture. I once had an executive coach tell me, stay a while, see if you can work it out. It'll be a good skill to have. Yeah. And you'll see that you can make it work. And I did make it work that time. But it ended up not being the greatest thing because then I had an even worse boss. Like, oh my God, so bad. And I said, I know I can make this work. I'm going to make it work. Oh no. But it did not work. I should have gotten out of there sooner. I've quit jobs uh, for that reason. I have. Doing it quicker is better. Lesson learned for me. Yeah. Can you talk about the successes that you're most proud of? You know, I think I did a lot to institutionalize the view of the world from the venture capital lens and from the view of startups. It's not that leaders in a tech company have no idea that there's VCs and startups out there, but they didn't have any connection to them. You know, so they might read TechCrunch, but they had never met a VC and it was all mysterious to them. And so when I got this job, one of the first things I started to do was bring senior executives out to visit VCs and hear directly from them why they did what they did, why they passed on certain deals, why they went for this trend and not that trend. The things they don't do is really informative as much as the things they do do. And I built a really big network by asking the VCs I met at first who they like to syndicate deals with. (laughs) So I did that. I asked Peter Fenton at Axel, you know, who he likes, and he introduced me to like five other people. He's not at Axel now. He's at Benchmark. But at the time he was. And and so I built a network by asking. I do this with wineries, by the way. I ask the winemakers I like, who else should I go visit? I do the same thing. It's a good way to build a network. So I did that with Venture. What do you think the future is going to bring us with regards to climate change? You think it's going to be really bad news or just bad news or good news? It's not going to be good news. By the way, this is my opinion. I didn't ask anybody in IBM, what do you think is going to happen in 30 years? 
So I think it's it's not good news. I think it has the ability to be okay news if we're careful. And here's my personal belief. I don't think the changes we need are going to come from the Paris Climate Accords, as delightful as they are, or from what big companies do, as well-intentioned as they are, or what governments do, as much as some of the people in government would like to do the right things. I think these are grassroots efforts. And I'll, I'll give you some examples. I spoke at a taconomy conference in March, and there were a lot of people there who were doing things that you could call hyper-local, micro-nuclear power plants, getting Wi-Fi networks in places where there was no internet at all, like a Navajo reservation, looking at ways for communities to come together and help each other. For example, here where I live in Silicon Valley, there was a grassroots effort to create butterfly gardens or to save bees. We actually have a couple of beekeepers in town or to conserve water, which is you know a big deal. And so I think when people come together and really pay attention to these things and they're looking at their own homes and they're seeing the changes in their own homes, the Italians who are farming on the River Po, they're really getting up in arms, right? I'm not on the River Po. I just am empathetic and I feel bad. But, you know, there are people who are living it. I live in Northern California where there's been drought for years. You know, we have water restrictions. You see these things and you think, okay, there are things that we as individuals and as communities and as groups of like-minded people can do. And I think that's going to have more of an effect. Has the pandemic changed your opinion at all or same opinion before, same opinion after? It's changed it a little bit because, and this is maybe more true of, eh, I think it's true up and down the line. People get distracted. So worrying about whether you're going to get sick, worrying about whether you should wear your face mask in this situation or that, worrying about you know, should you go on vacation? Should you just take this business meeting in person instead of on a Zoom like we're doing now? When you worry about those things, it distracts you from doing some of the things you need to do. So I think what there was, was a pause or a hiatus in worrying about things related to disease, to climate, to other kinds of things. You know, there are lots of stories about kids not getting their shots because they were worried about COVID. So they're not getting their other shots. And there was a case of polio in New York recently. That's just very distressing. So people need to be able to pay attention to more than one thing at a time. <laughs> it's hard for human beings to do that, but it's starting to happen because things are loosening up a little bit. It's so hard to be proactive about something that's long-term right. when there's really bad short-term stuff going on. Correct. If you might get sick next month, you're not going to worry about what happens to the River Po five years from now, but you should. You should. And some people do. I said I was a psychologist. I'm a big believer in human beings doing the right things. I'm not necessarily a big believer in institutions doing the right things. Some of them do. Some of them don't. But I think when people really rally together, they're amazing. I'll give you a, a, an instance of that. I promised my friend, Robert Gehorsum, I would tell you this. He's a friend of uh, Seth Godin, who I don't know. But they got together and thought, this is so politicized. Climate tech and carbon, it's so politicized and people don't listen to the science. What if we just put together an almanac and we crowdsourced it? They didn't use the word crowdsource, but they got like 300 contributors. Some were writing, some were designing things, some were doing illustrations, some were editing, some were sourcing content. And they put together something called the Carbon Almanac, which was published by Penguin. They were from 90 different countries. When you have the ability to rally people together to say, this is what I believe is happening. I can see it. I know it's happening. 
This is why I know. And then here are some actions you can take. This is what we can do about it. I think that's really heartening. That was super inspiring. I'm very excited to check that out. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. That sounds like advice, but I do want to give you a chance to give (laughs) other advice about what people should do if they want to help mitigate climate change. I said I wasn't a big believer in institutions, but I'm kind of lying. I I always vote (laughs) and I do make sure I pay attention to what I'm voting for. So I think people really do have to think about who's in office and what they can do about it. These people should be in office. These people should not be in office. If you care about climate, it really matters. It matters a lot. So I think the actions you can take politically, even as an individual, you don't have to be an activist to have some effect because in the aggregate, people have an effect. And so I believe in social change. I believe that things that people care about can be heard. So besides Carbon Albanac and besides you know some of the things that IBM does with our clients, there, there are other things other things that people can do. And they can do things individually themselves, as I said. Do you have any questions for me? I did have a question for you, actually. My question is, this is Climate Champions. You're talking to people about the same themes, but of course, they're different people. Are you getting some thematic trends out of these conversations? Are you getting some consistency or is it just all over the place? It's kind of a beautiful thing in that it's not all over the place. I'm not going to say it's not consistent, but It's very different perspectives about how to attack the problem and what we need to do. There are common themes and there are things that are are different. And I learned from every single conversation because of that. And I hope my listeners are learning something too. Otherwise, actually, I did have one of the companies that I advise say that he gets a nugget from every episode. Oh, that's so cool. That's a great answer. Yeah, I find myself adopting some of the phrases people use on this podcast as I speak about it, because I like it so much, I steal it. I steal things shamelessly as well when I like them. Hey, is there anything else that you want to say? I do. I mentioned I was at a conference in March, and there was a lot of discussion, and I actually got asked this when I was being interviewed. There was a lot of discussion about climate reporting and any kind of consistency in climate reporting. We bought a company called Invisi back in January, which helps with climate mitigation, management, and reporting. And I was asked, can we get to a standard? And my answer was no, you can't get to a single standard because think of what Dow Chemical is going to do that's different from what PepsiCo will do. That's different from, I'm wearing Gap jeans, that's different from what the Gap will do to conserve water. That's different from IBM as a corporation will do. That's different from a solar panel maker will do. I think you can get some consistency within industries and within types of business that have similarities, but there's not one standard. I don't think there is. That's very interesting. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. No, <laughs> no more, <laughs> no more birds. That was the thing that you learned from reading Silent Spring. I'm pretty sure that I heard you say you were in the Boston Globe on Earth Day. When you want to convince people, you help them know by showing them pictures like the dried out river Po, you help leadership make the decision to start an IBM sustainability division. Sometimes people say they're doing the right thing, but it's hard to get traction. A lot of times it's fluff. They need to take action. Without meeting the team, it was hard for venture capital to know, but now they approve deals without meeting the CEO. 
One of the situations that you liked the least is when you were told that you had to move back east. Without people helping, without technology innovation, the future will be frightful. But you did say the Paris Accords were quite delightful. At the end, you gave everyone the note that even though you don't believe in institutions, you still vote. I'm sorry if my rap was a little haggard. Thank you so much, Deborah Maggard. Bravo, you. (laughs) (laughs) I told you I was excited. Deborah was motivated into action when she saw our planet's incredible legacy literally melting, drying up, and burning. She inspired me to do some research on the River Po. The story and pictures are shocking. Last month, Italy declared a state of emergency due to the drought. The Portland region, where I recently moved, just set a record for heat wave duration. Hey, this isn't what I signed up for, but I guess nowhere is safe. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Zebra reminded us that we need to act urgently and that we need all arrows in the quiver. People, technology, businesses, and government all need to engage if we're going to successfully mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm.